0: Welcome to SPAC Island with your hosts, Stan and Alex.
1: We're two Silicon Valley tech product managers who love stock investing and have jumped on board the SPAC boat. Join us on our journey to find the diamonds in the rough, but please always do your own research
0: before trading. This is not financial advice. The way that we'll we'll first go through the framework that we're assessing these two companies with, Uh, so Rocket Lab on one side, Astra on the other side, Mm -hmm. we'll first assess the team, then their launch capability slash technology. So launch capability being what kind of rockets they currently have in operation, how successful or unsuccessful those rockets have been, uh, what their capabilities are overall. So like essentially going through the types of rockets they have, what they, where they can put satellites, can they put it in low-Earth orbit, geosync, can they launch other planets or moons in our case? And then what are their longer-term ambitions? Do they mm-hmm. want to go to Mars? Do they want to be go into space tourism? What is their longer-term ambition as a company? So then we'll assess these two companies based on that and then kind of try to extrapolate what their long-term kind of growth potential is mm-hmm. uh, as a stock, especially because they're both SPACs, they're both uh, merging with these uh, acquisition companies. Mm-hmm. So they'll be merged and on the market in the next few months. So Rocket Lab is originally a New Zealand company. It was founded by Peter Beck uh, way back in like 2006. This guy basically just really wanted to make rockets. He worked at NASA and then he worked at some other engineering companies, got a lot of engineering chops, but uh, just wasn't able to really work on ro- rockets and do the thing that he ultimately wanted to do. So he decided to go and make a rocket company, easier said than done, as many people have tried and, and failed in that mission. But in 2009, he and his little team at the time actually were able to launch a super small rocket that got two kilograms of payload into space. So essentially they were able to launch two kilograms, 150 kilometers up back in 2009 as like their first go go-around uh, just getting some funding from the New Zealand government and from an investor that Peter had met along the way. And then fast forward a few years to 2013, they started working on the Electron. So the Electron is their orbital rocket. So essentially going from just getting to space in 2009 to orbital ambitions to actually place satellites in orbit. And then finally, in 2018, they were able to put a payload into orbit, uh 300 kilogram payload. So relatively small satellite and they're able to price it around seven and a half million dollars at launch which is like so i think uh, spacex is 50 million dollars for their falcon 9 and electron is putting a payload significantly smaller than falcon 9 but they're able to put it in for seven and a half million dollars so definitely cheaper so then as you like kind of look at the team and how how far they've gone in the last several years peter beck obviously very interested in rockets super passionate about it and essentially willing to do whatever it takes to make sure his company succeeds, which is something you always want. He's obviously also got a deep knowledge of rockets, especially having led a rocket company for more than a decade at this point. In terms of the cadence and how much, how often they're launching. So this Electron is now launching uh, regularly. So in 2020, they were able to get to a monthly launch schedule. Uh, so essentially launching a rocket just about every month. It was a little bit disrupted due to COVID. So they weren't able to actually launch every single month, but they essentially have the backlog now to support that just when things kind of settle down with their supply chain. In terms of technology, they have an orbital class rocket. They have contracts with NASA to launch a payload to Venus and then to the moon. So they also have the capability to support uh, interplanetary and missions to the moon as well. So pretty exciting. They're already generating revenue off of these launches. In terms of their longer term ambition. I kind of like that uh, their their longer term ambition is not so lofty. They're not trying to go to Mars. They're not trying to go interstellar. They're just trying to put satellites into orbit and put the occasional product satellite into Venus, Venus's orbit or uh, some other planet. But they're not trying to do space tourism. They're not trying to make a uh, resort in space or do anything too crazy. They're just putting small satellites in orbit affordably. And that's, that's what their goal is. That's what they're doing. And they're doing it pretty effectively. I kind of like that they're not spending uh, copious amounts of R&D money on lofty ambitions. They're not trying to make something that everyone else is trying to do. They're just going after a market that uh, is not so saturated.
1: So Astra is, like Rocket Lab, a rocket company. Uh, their goal is to develop rockets and launch payloads into space. Uh, the company is founded by, and led by Chris Kemp. Chris Kemp has a background working at NASA and something called OpenStack. He developed uh, a cloud computing strategy for the U.S. government uh, while he was in the White House. You know, While he is the CEO and the CEO has an important role, I think the more interesting leaders inside the company are actually a couple of the executive leaders. First is uh, Chris Thompson, the chief engineer. He actually was the co-founder of SpaceX and VP of structures, leading development of Falcon 1, the Falcon 9, and the Dragon capsule. While Chris Kemp doesn't seem to have much of a rocket or aerospace background, at least was able to recruit seemingly a a heavy hitter to his team. Uh, He also poached Bryson uh, Gentile as VP of manufacturing, um, this guy also has a SpaceX background and worked uh, leading the manufacturing engineering team there for the Falcon 9 rocket. So those two guys, given the success that SpaceX has seen, seem to be the leaders that I'm going to keep my eye on for them. I'm pretty I'm pretty meh on Chris Kemp because I like a leader that really has a strong understanding of the business that they're in at a, like a very granular level. And to that extent, I really see Chris Thompson and Bryson as the drivers of innovation within the company. So if either those two guys leave or, you know, seem to seem to have issues with the company, that'd be definitely cause for concern. But, you know, so far they've been around since 2016 and have developed a few different rockets trying to uh, launch payloads. Um, so given that they were founded in 2016, it seems like this NASA guy basically saw that the administration at the time, the Trump administration, uh, was really into space and decided to start a rocket company to perhaps capitalize on that. And it seems like over the years, they've developed a few different rockets, um, three versions actually, uh, when I was doing my research. Unfortunately, it seems like they've only ever managed to get one rocket past the Kármán line. And that was done... December of 2020, so actually only a few months ago. For context, the Kármán line is this line that basically separates Earth's atmosphere from outer space. So if you were able to get past the altitude of the Kármán line, technically you've made it into outer space, or at least that's my understanding. So in December of 2020, Astra got one of their rockets past that line, unfortunately that rocket didn't actually achieve real orbit due to an issue with their fuel mixture and so they so far have never really carried a payload out to space they haven't really had the level of um like maturity in their product development uh to match up to somebody like a rocket lab
0: yeah just for just for context here Mm -hmm. you know rocket lab did this in 2009 with two kilograms you know just saying
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but what they're looking forward to is to try to launch some commercial operations this year and into next year. They're really still building out their rocket factory. So I think the, basically the takeaway is that they're still working out the kinks of their technology. Uh, 2021 should be a pivotal year in terms of building out their their capabilities to, to get to a cadence where they can do more and more launches. Moving on from that, uh, they already... Have generated a lot of interest, um, so they've got you know a bunch of launches in the backlog across you know ten plus uh, potential customers. Um, given that they want to, when they first start really doing a repeating cadence of launches, they're going to start monthly and then get into weekly, uh, biweekly, and then daily over uh, a one year period for each cadence. So one year monthly cadence of launches one year at doing weekly launches, and then by 2024, they'd be doing biweekly. So if you look at you know 50 plus launches in the backlog, you're ba- they're basically booked solid through the next few years. So if they can achieve what they set out to achieve, they have a lot of uh, money on the table waiting for them. The real question is, can they deliver payloads and can they get into orbit? I think that based on their deck, there's not a lot that i can really tout and be super confident about in their company. The thing that i can say from their deck is that they're not trying to be too innovative and spend too much time in R&D to try to reinvent the rocket industry. They're trying to take industry learnings and just get to the point where, you know, they have something working. Uh, and to that end, they're kind of occupying a former Alameda Naval Air Station as their headquarters. You know, so they're they're rolling up their sleeves, they're getting to work. So at least that's a good sign. Uh, but eventually, they want to be doing near daily launches at a price that is cheaper than Rocket Lab, uh, which certainly is very aggressive and a very lofty goal. The information that I was able to dig up doesn't necessarily indicate either way, like whether they'll be able to actually meet that with any level of certainty. Like The only thing that really gives me confidence that they'll be able to hit that is that they have a couple... SpaceX people on board to to try to carry that forward. As far as their expectations go, um, they expect to launch three times uh, and ramp that up five x to fifteen launches next year. And so you know, as they launch, but to not get break even on their EBITDA until twenty twenty four. So this is a pretty early stage company with not a lot of meat on the bone yet. I think they're still really trying to, you know, grow out the technology side of their business before they can really try to to scale on the on the business side. I think more companies operating in this space definitely grows the overall pie and it inspires people to jump into the space and to
0: invest. Pretty lofty ambitions.
1: Yeah, I would say the key contrast in the presentations is that Rocket Lab is very keen on touting the amount of progress that it's made and the amount of innovations that they've developed in order to achieve that progress. Whereas Astra is really more like a, like a venture pitch deck of like, we would love to do this. And if you give us money, one day we may hit our lofty goal. Whereas Rocket Lab is more of like a sales pitch of, we can do this for you already and by next year, we will be able to do these other things on top of what we can already do.
0: And I, I forgot to also mention that they can actually recover their first stage of the rocket. Yes. So they're already able to, to save a significant amount of money by doing that and also to put those back in operation so you don't have to keep making the first stage. To be fair, they have not reused any of their
1: rockets yet. So they've kind of recaptured and they recaptured it in a state where they can
0: reuse it. But they have yet to actually relaunch that rocket. It's kind of what uh, SpaceX did. that first one that they captured, they never actually launched again. I don't know if there's a reason behind it. Maybe they like realize that they they should have done some stuff ahead of time or it's not launchable or they just want to keep it as like a museum piece. I don't know. It is interesting that both those companies did the same thing with that with that recaptured uh, core.
1: Well, uh, just to get a little bit more in the weeds, they did it slightly different, right? So like I think if you watch SpaceX. They very famously have a platform uh, or drone ship that floats in the ocean, and the scientists have calculated the intersection point of uh, where the rocket would land so that the drone ship can intercept the rocket and literally have it kind of land upright. Rocket Lab decided to do it a little bit differently, right?
0: Well, I guess the core, like the rocket wouldn't be affected by the two differences too much. In theory, they could both lift off again.
1: And so Rocket Lab, they did it by actually, instead of maintaining a little bit of fuel left for the rocket to slow down like SpaceX does to land upright onto the platform, what Rocket Lab did is the stage one booster rocket still falls towards the towards the ground in towards the ocean, but then it deploys parachutes up the top. So the velocity of the fall slows down considerably, slows down enough so that a helicopter, this chopper... Um, can dangle like a basically almost like a fish hook, such that it hooks onto the parachute and uh, basically carries it over to you know some some ship that is waiting to uh, to receive the the rocket booster. So that helicopter-based approach definitely seems to be a lot cheaper than doing all the technology necessary to to have a rocket land upright. But I think that potentially, you know, obviously people like Elon Musk have thought about all these different options and they felt like they went with the better option for them. I feel like perhaps the complexity is adding the parachute component. What happens if the parachute doesn't deploy, for example? Like, I feel like you would also almost need to spin up a whole other parachute team to kind of try to make sure that the parachute deploys on time, that you manage like the weight properly and all that stuff. Whereas perhaps SpaceX's logic is that they don't need to spin up any extra teams. Like they can just use the their core competencies of like all this rocket technology that they already have, just add a little bit of extra fuel.
0: Yeah, there's a couple, like on the rocket side, there's a couple key uh, things that you have to add. So like if you're a if you're SpaceX, like, I mean, the parachute, I, you'd have to have like I don't think a helicopter could actually, um, take on the weight, but, uh, more than that, you also like to have the parachute to land it upright would be really difficult to control unless you have like additional thrust thrusters, which you have anyways. And if you're landing it out to sea, then you got to like somehow control the breeze. so It increases the uh, risk of missing the drone ship. So. It's gonna probably be easier to to use the extra fuel, but it does mean you gotta put all these extra thrusters. You gotta put the grid fins. You gotta put more fuel in the tank uh, for the for the recovery. So it, it's like tech. It's way co- more complicated. But if you do the mm-hmm. parachute, then you gotta you have a lot less control of where your landing site is. So that's kind of like the the trade-off. At some point, I think SpaceX is like SpaceX probably realized that with their with their overall ambi- right. ambitions of going to Mars no matter what you're going to have to have some type of landing mechanism that's relatively accurate it's a matter of like do you do the parachute now or do you, or do you do the um the propulsive landing now or do you do it later mm. cuz like you just you wouldn't have much control i think that's like the nice thing about the electron like they don't need control it's a small rocket they don't want to put extra mm. fuel on that thing they don't want to make all these thrusters they don't want to do all the really really complicated stuff around even trying to do a, comp- a propulsive landing when well, you don't need to, I mean, it's light enough that a helicopter can pick it up and bear the weight. So you just stage a helicopter out there. I think originally they weren't even planning to do recovery. They just happened to realize that they don't mm-hmm. need to go the same route as SpaceX. They realized like, Oh, like the amount that this type of helicopter can hold is like maybe half or it's significantly under what the weight threshold is mm-hmm. of the rocket. When it's returning after all the fuel spent so they can pick it up. So why why go through all the complicated math and additional uh, thrusters and engines and parts that you'd have to make and put on your rocket and add weight to, which would also take away from your payload? When you could just pop open a parachute. And uh, they might. I wonder also. Like I'm I'm sure like these kind of parachutes are used all the time. There's also um plane parachutes. So like private pilots. Some private pilots, you can you can opt to get a parachute mounted to your plane. So if there's an emergency, like the engine stalls or anything happens, you can just open the parachute and drift down to the ground. So I'm sure there's, like, there's plenty of these commercially available. So I don't know how much they would have necessarily had to um, customize it. They might have been able to get something off the shelf. I think the customization would have come around uh, where the helicopter latches on. But this type of system, I, I want to say this is a type of system that the military also uses.
1: No, they for sure have. Um, I think even during the Cold War, I think spy satellites would drop payloads, mm-hmm. or maybe even just like deploy their own parachute and then, I think it was I think it was like payloads of like film, where they if they like took photos of of uh, I guess uh, Soviet territories, and then maybe the navy would would kind of um, take it back in to develop the film mm-hmm. via that method.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is old technology. I don't, I'm just thinking, like, does Rocket Lab need their own parachute team? Maybe. But uh, they probably would have just contracted this out to a company that does this for airplanes or whatever for the military. I guess. Just to give them their specs. But, but to be
1: fair, they tout that they're very, very vertically integrated. Like, I remember seeing them say that. Yeah, it was
0: like 90%. Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how you would really calculate percent of, you know, Well, a percentage of
0: parts, like say you have... But some parts are obviously more
1: important and some are like more complicated or bigger or smaller. I guess if actually, if I were
0: them, I would go with weight. Because like, as long as you make the heaviest parts, like you make your own engine Mm. and you make the hull, that's like 90% of the weight. Yeah. (laughs) So then all these other things that you outsource, you can tap that.
1: But some of the electronics have got to be some of the most crucial components.
0: But from a weight perspective, they wouldn't... Yeah. Yeah. So you can outsource all that and still have your 90% number. I don't know how much they're optimizing for that 90% number. I think it just happens to be when you make all the heaviest. You make when you make your own engine and you make the like the casing mm. on your own, then it just happens to be the most of the weight. Yeah. So you can say 90% is built in house.
1: I do love a good vertically integrated business, and I do also love that they do 3D printing to to make their rocket engines. I just think that that is such a cool and perfect use of 3D printing where these 3D printed engines can basically be anything that you want so you can really from the ground up design a rocket that makes sense for whatever use case you want so you know if you're a smaller rocket maybe you want to make custom tweaks to improve the design instead of just copying a uh, design from you know traditionally larger rockets that are made I don't know if that holds up as a as a use case but I really like seeing that they three D print their their rockets. Just for the nerd factor. <laughs>
0: it's probably cost effective because you don't have to make them old. Yeah. And you don't really care how long it takes. Yeah. So
1: Well, they're saying they can produce a rocket every week. So they've seems like they've got it down pretty good.
0: If you have the uh three D printer going for like and it takes like seven days, mm-hmm. then you get seven of those or you just have like printers. three four printers going all the time. Yeah. Like you don't need to cast it and make something in like an hour or two, mm-hmm. you, you can make it in a few days, and it's it's totally fine.
1: I think it's also really cool because, like for NASA, I know that when they were making their space shuttles and rockets, I think you know the U.S. government used a lot of contractors from a lot of different states and locations. Like that was part of the complexity of getting to space, right? It was like everything was made in a distributed fashion, and to be honest, it's kind of a miracle that it all kind of like worked and you actually got people in space. Mm-hmm. but this now is the next generation where you know what you need to make and you understand what it takes to make it so you can kind of do it all in-house and kind of iterate from that level, but that just gives you so much yeah. more
0: control. and yeah, how much cheaper it is. We're getting this down to 7.5 million to, to launch. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, Astra versus Rocket Lab, like super impressed with Rocket Lab. Really like kind of how legit they feel all the way through. Mm-hmm. Like they've been working on, it's not like they're just trying to kind of capitalize on an opportunity it's like no like they've been doing this because they want to be doing this doing this for almost 15 years now Mm -hmm. because this is what they this is who they are and then astra on the other hand kind of feels like a money grab
1: it does it does it really gives off that kind of vibe i will say i own both companies a little bit of both i think i will find try to find an opportunity to uh dump astra and just build up my rocket lab position higher
0: I think uh, Astra halved since I bought it. So
1: I'm not surprised.
0: I stay in for a while.
1: Well, there. I mean, there are some others that have taken a pretty steep dive that I'm still pretty bullish on, like App Harvest. Oh yeah. But Astra, oh, yeah, I, Astra I does not really fit in that bucket for me right now. Even if they, I, I agree even if that. they turn out to be a huge success, like you know, as good as Rocket Lab, um, I think it's just going to take several years for them to get to that point that Rocket Lab already is at. Not having to bet on all the R and D working out, from that perspective, makes Rocket Lab a little bit cheaper of a risk.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've already had to pay for all mm-hmm. that. Did you did you understand why uh, Astra has a launch site in Kodiak, Alaska? I don't. That's something I was didn't understand because um, I guess the the further away you are from the equator, the um, more fuel you need in order to get into orbit. So that means you need a bigger rocket. You need to, It's more expensive because you have to go faster because the essentially the Earth is spinning at like 1,000 miles an hour. So you get an extra boost because you're close to the equator where the rotation is the fastest. Mm-hmm. The further north you go, then you have less rotation. So that's why like you'll see like uh, the European Space Agency, they don't launch in Europe. They launch uh, in like French Suriname because it's closer to the equator. Mm-hmm. That's why Cape Canaveral is our main launch site. Because it's close to the equator. That's why probably SpaceX has Boca Chica, because mm-hmm. it's the furthest south they could go. Mm-hmm.
1: I think the only reason you would really have a launch site in Alaska is for defense purposes from Russia, like from a like for missile yeah. defense. But that's for like a very specific but use case.
0: That's a, there's a good reason for that. But like if you're a private company, like why would you go to a place that's so cold most of the year, so remote? And you don't even get any benefits from uh, Earth rotation. I, I got to be missing something here. But to me, it just feels like a very odd decision for a company to go in the wrong direction. <laughs> so Totally fair. Rocket Lab, yeah. Rocket Lab gives me confidence all the way through. Mm. So I think uh, just like one more kind of weird thing that Astra is doing.
1: Pretty bullish on Rocket Lab. Somewhat bearish on uh, on Astra.
0: Also, did you get an idea of like what their longer term ambitions are? No. I think really they're
1: just trying to prove that they can send things to space. I don't think they're I think their long term ambition is just to make money. Yeah, I don't know that they have some philosophical mission that they're going after. Or at least it's not very it's not really touted clearly in the pitch deck. I would say yeah. Any real mission that they have is to meet this demand of trying to spend as many rockets into space as possible. Like they know that it's going to be a huge market and that the market requires you know being able to scale the amount of launches you can make and the, you know and, and how cheap all the costs have to be. So I think they just want to try to get space to a
0: point where it's uh, highly scaled to support a space economy mm-hmm. to their credit. They're doing it for relatively cheap. Like they haven't used that much, um, money relative to, you know, some other companies. You mean in terms of
1: total funding? Yeah. Well, they've they only, only have... been around for like a few years.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, at least on Crunchbase they have a hundred million that they've raised. It just, it, it feels like despite not having that much funding relative to other folks, Like they've actually built a rocket while they haven't made something that is been able to have a stable orbit. They've at least gotten past uh, the Carmen line and they've been able to at least get to space. So like I have pretty high confidence that in the next few months, they'll be able to put something in orbit.
1: If we look at their valuation. So Astra, when they announced would have a valuation of $2 billion. They went from a 2 billion to a $4 billion valuation. And now they're back to about a two, I guess right now, astra is sitting at about a two billion dollar valuation and rocket lab when it was announced had a four billion dollar valuation sitting pretty close to what they originally announced for for sure rocket lab is worth at least twice if not more
0: and i guess you're, you're essentially paying for the, the extra risk as far as astra goes i'm paying for the two spacex people it's- that's what I'm paying for. Yeah, and hoping and praying that they can uh, figure it out. Hey, Lucid's doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a me too company.
1: What confuses me is like I would be so much more confident in Astra as a business if you had Chris Thompson or Bryson Gentile as the CEO leading the company as like a CEO CTO type of thing because the bio on Chris Thompson is that he was the co-founder of SpaceX. So like, I feel like in terms of, and maybe this is a little too corporate, but him going from a co-founder of SpaceX to pretty much the same level, it's like, I feel like he could have gotten the, uh, the lucid bump or like the lucid one where like, he promoted himself to CEO, you know what I mean? He, he kind of made a lateral
0: move. Almost as if he's like tacked on, like he might just be a token person. To help with the fundraise. I don't I mean I don't that's just pure speculation. I don't know what the reality is. But you're right, it does it does seem kind of odd, but he could have also just he could have left uh SpaceX like a while ago and he's kind of been just out of the industry. I mean
1: I'm sure he got a ton of shares
0: to well, join he, the company. Yeah, he's
1: probably he's probably well compensated. I hope he didn't sell his SpaceX shares, but that's gotta be doing pretty good at this point. But I think from a perhaps a like leadership growth or a Ooh.
0: kind of. So I'm looking, I'm looking at him now. Hmm. Yeah. So he's co-founder May 2002 hmm. to 2011. Then he worked for like one month at Blue Origin. Like literally just and in May 2012 up. and then left. And then in <laughs> August, he went to Virgin Galactic, Virgin Galactic, worked there for five years and then he moved to Astra.
1: So is he just like trying to pick up RSUs and stock options is that? <laughs> that's what I'm hearing right now. I mean, now. he's a co-founder he's just like of going, SpaceX. Like he's already set for life. Only in the last few years has SpaceX really become like a pop like a cultural well, thing. I'd
0: say like 20 whenever they got the Falcon 9. I think that was 2013, 2014. They were Yeah, able, well let's... the the first
1: the first vertical landing whenever that was.
0: I just checked the the crash the crash was 2014 man i thought that was like didn't they have more than one I think they had... or is it just the one where the were well, the one really died. bad one where the guy died yeah r.i.p i mean this guy yeah this guy is super legit why he's not in a bigger role i think maybe he just doesn't want to be that yeah that could be it i mean head of engineering chief engineer they put him on the rocket and he's doing well enough to have them actually like making rockets relatively quickly
1: Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's enough for him. Anyway, if he jumps, if he leaves like he did with Blue Origin, I think I can be pretty confident in saying Astra would be a dumpster fire
0: at that point. Rocket Lab, firm buy Astra, uh, maybe buy like 50% of what you put in Rocket Lab.
1: I would say buy like maybe 20%. <laughs> I would say like Astra is really the lottery ticket at this point. It's It's... I, in my opinion, it's more R and D project than actual business.
0: No, I like, like I was watching some of their their launches. Like, so I think the thing with launches is like every crash you learn you learn a ton, right? There's like only so many things that can really go wrong. So like, okay, the fuel mixture was wrong. Okay, we fix the fuel mixture next time. Okay, mm-hmm. like there was a bolt that broke. Okay, don't get that supplier. Like every time, like you're learning. So essentially, every crash or every attempt, you learn you learn one more thing that could go wrong that you know how to fix. So that doesn't happen again. So, I
1: yeah, I can see that. I think I think winnings and learnings both compound, but I think they like it's like it's like SpaceX, right? Like they lost so many of those Russian rockets that Elon bought, and then at some point they flipped. It, it's like not inflection point, but like they they flipped.
0: Well, the fourth the fourth one worked. Yeah, that's right? what I'm
1: saying. Like at one point they learned enough so that they could actually repeatedly um, launch rockets successfully. And Astra has not really hit that, you know, light switch, light bulb on moment, where they're just good. Because even on the timeline, the the one in December twenty twenty, again, they passed the uh, the Carmen line, but then they didn't actually get into orbit. Like they considered that a successful. But the first the first
0: stage worked. I think the second stage is where they had the issue. So now it's like uh, SpaceX, like one of their launches. The uh, first mm-hmm. stage hit the second stage and then knocked it out of orbit, and so there was a mission failure. Yep. So it's like, yeah, I, yep, you I know, remember that. Great. They like they figured out the first stage. Now they got to figure out the second stage. I think it's going to take like one or two more attempts, and then they're they're going to have it on lock.
1: Yeah. Hopefully. So twenty twenty one is going to be a big year for Astra for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's the make or break year, and I think like that's mm-hmm. also why they've gotten this funding.
1: All right. You want to talk about Redwire? Yep. I think RedWire is a pretty cool company. You know, the aerospace industry has all these defense contractors and subcontractors. Apparently, RedWire saw an opportunity to merge several of them together to create this mega company. Uh, It's not the first. Uh, Maxar, this satellite imaging company, also went through a buying spree and merged with, like, four other companies to become another conglomerate for the space industry. But the interesting thing about Redwire is they actually have an interesting mix of older companies that have been around for a while with newer companies that are kind of pushing the boundaries. None of the companies are rocket companies like Astra or Rocket Lab. They're all more satellite-based, uh, satellite components, or kind of space manufacturing type type businesses. So more space economy than actually space infrastructure. Well, space infrastructure in the sense that they're still building satellites, but less about building the actual constellations and more like what are the components necessary? What are the, what, like concentrating all the talent necessary to, to um, make all these things that you want to make to make the space industry work. One of the OG space companies that they uh, acquired was Adcole Space Manufacturing. You know, in this pitch deck, you'll see that they have slides touting that, you know, they have this quote unquote industry leading flight heritage. And basically what they're trying to say with that phrase is that the companies that they've acquired, you know, their technology has been used in, you know, over 50 years of spaceflight, 150 plus satellite missions. And I think a big chunk of that comes from Adcoli. The company was originally founded in 1957, which, uh, if you'll remember, is the year that space uh, that Sputnik was, uh, was launched and kicked off the space race. So this company's been there from the beginning. And their claim to fame is a sun angle sensor that helps rockets and satellites uh, maintain their orientation in space, I guess, relative to the sun. And so this sensor is used on literally every GPS satellite. I won't say literally because I might be wrong, but pretty much every GPS satellite that the U.S. has sent out there uses this sun angle sensor. Every time you have these like Mars missions, you know, the Pathfinder in 97, the Curiosity rover in 2012, those missions use this sensor. And on top of that, they also have, you know, some of these other one, uh, other satellite components that they build. But the sun angle sensor, the one they invented in 1957 to kick off Ad Cole space as a company is just like still used today. So I don't know enough about space and and the components and like that's necessary to make all this stuff work, but that's gotta be a pretty damn great sensor to still be used like 50 years plus after it was invented.
0: Yeah. Especially after the patent expires.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: So I
1: don't know what it is. Maybe they just have like really great contracts that lock people in indefinitely for some reason. Uh, maybe they're just like, they're biz dev people are just like the
0: nicest guys ever. I think it's also risk. I think mm. that's also like a big driver in this industry is like, uh, you don't want to change vendors to somebody that's cheaper. Like that's, that's what uh, SpaceX was disrupting, right? Like everyone's like, okay, like we'd rather spend like 10 times more and get something that's not going to break and we're not going to get fired and nothing's going to blow up or like like the sun sensor. Like if that sensor breaks, what does it mean to your mission? Does that mean that you can no longer get power? to your vehicle? Does that mean you can no longer orient? Like, If that's a mission failure, like, do you really want to go for the cheaper guy? Or would you rather go with the one that everyone's been using for the last 50 years?
1: That is very fair. So they could get disrupted by a newer player. But then again, they also acquired some of these other companies, Deep Space Systems. They specialize in camera hardware. They're actually a contractor for the Artemis program, um, which is the, the program that's supposed to send manned missions back to the moon. They acquired uh, Oakman Aerospace, where they have a lot of teams that can basically build you whatever you want. It's all these different companies, seven companies that all merge together. I would say four or five of them are like these companies that are just smaller contractors that either have some sort of, you know, special product that they make, uh, but they just have these overall mechanical engineering teams and like these these people that just understand space and what it takes to make stuff. So I think that they should be pretty nimble as a company so as long as somehow these teams can get along together or if they can just collaborate and keep doing what they're doing, you know, it should be really interesting. I would say one of the more easy to hype acquisitions they made is uh, have you heard of a company called Made in Space? Mm-mm. Did you hear about how in the in the ISS this was, you know, a few years ago now at this point, they made this ratchet that was 3d printed in space as like a tool. That was like the first thing 3d printed in space ever. Yeah. Yeah, so that was them. That was made in space. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that was 2014 and it was like I said the first thing ever 3d printed in space. It's a tool, so you know, obviously very useful to have. Some of the stats that I dug up was that NASA just sends like thousands and thousands of pounds of spare parts to the ISS every year because I guess things break a lot and you need to repair things. And so the value proposition of 3D printing parts seems to be pretty attractive enough so that, you know, since they, since Made in Space sent up the 3D printer in 2014 and sent up another model that could actually recycle polymer to, let's say you want to, you had a ratchet, but now you need a screwdriver that you can like remake the ratchet into a screwdriver They've made two hundred plus tools and parts and whatever um, over the last few years, and so I was doing some quick back of the napkin calculations, and it seems like they've been printing like one thing per week, so it's uh, you know it's been getting use. It seems it's not just like a little toy product that they you know tried once as an experiment and then never used again. It seems to actually be adding value to the cruise. so that I think that's pretty exciting. Um, you know, I think it's more space experiment. Than something that you would build a lot of things of, or like build super mission critical things of, like electronics or anything. But um, I think it's still super exciting to see that the 3D printer that they built is actually being used. And an upcoming super exciting thing is that in 2019, you know, Made in Space was awarded a NASA contract to build this robotic manufacturing machine. And the mission is called Arcanaut One. So if you you know if you wanted to Google that, it's a mission that will be launching in two thousand and twenty-two, where they're actually going to in space construct this a uh, couple of these ten-meter solar arrays that'll be used on what's called an ESPA satellite. Uh, ESPAs are basically like this last-mile delivery um, uh, little little satellites that move constellations like move these, uh, these satellites that you want to position, like a spa- maybe a SpaceX constellation satellite uh, into its kind of final orbit. Uh, at least that's my understanding. And so, you know, normally you have to like send these up, but Arcanaut 1 is going to try to have this robot that can just make the solar arrays that you put onto these ESPA satellites. So that to me is like super cool because not only are you just building little toy tools that the ISS can use, you might actually start building core uh, key satellite components Straight up in space. Yeah, and fun fact: it'll be sent on an electron rocket in twenty twenty two.
0: Coming full circle.
1: Oh yeah, I love going full circle, man. I think Made in Space has a really interesting story. You know, I I think that the the issue that they're tackling and just the additive manufacturing and you know trying to make machines that can build more machines in space is just an incredibly alluring concept. And I haven't even talked about the second core use case, which is, you know, in in on Earth where you have you know one G. When things are manufactured, you have to deal with that one G. And what ends up happening is, in certain things that you want to make, like fiber optic cables, which are widely used now to you know carry things like internet signals, right? The production process actually has little defects sometimes in it, um, or the quality, um, you know, isn't close enough to, it, it. it isn't in its ideal form or in its kind of theoretically perfect form uh, because of the gravity exerted uh, on the fiber optic um, little fibers uh, during production, uh, which leads to, you know, poorer quality fiber optic cables. The interesting thing is that in space, you can make things like fiber optic cables with far less defects um, because you're in microgravity, which is effectively uh, no gravity. So, if you were to make fiber optic cables in space, just make, you know, spool like many, many spools of those, you could almost ship them back down to Earth and just have like much higher quality fiber optic cables that you could never achieve on Earth and just have that be a product. And I think that that is a very compelling value proposition made in space is partnering with this New Jersey company called Thor Labs to try to start making some of those in orbit.
0: Uh, so I'm pretty excited to see the the outcome of that. I mean, that might be the most expensive fiber optic cables ever made, but uh, I could definitely see that as a longer term like incentive to make some type of factories in orbit.
1: Yeah, I mean, you got to start somewhere. Uh, I think that the idea of space manufacturing I guess I romanticize this idea so much in space of like, because I want to see space as an industry grow, I think that if space were to become a mature industry, it wouldn't be tethered to Earth-based manufacturing. And so in this world, there has to be some type of company that solves the problems. And Made in Space seems to be interested in tackling those.
0: Oh yeah, 100%. It gets so hard to get out of the Earth's gravity well that ultimately like the most feasible way to like go to other planets and like go beyond our little part of the solar system would be to use like uh like the moon for instance so you'd have to manufacture everything on the moon you're not going to go truck Mm -hmm. all this steel and all these manufacturing engine rocket engines and stuff to the moon you're going to try to make it there so this is like one step towards uh, a larger manufacturing initiative in space Mm mm-hmm totally
1: and I think the nice thing about having all these companies as in one under one roof is that you have companies you know from like were founded in the 50s you know the early 2000s 2010 2011 and you really get this portfolio of companies with varying degrees of maturity so you can imagine if you're talking about like a, from a financial perspective how robust the company is you know you could have these cash cows like Uh, Like the solar sensor, the solar angle sensor, you know, be anchoring your business and, you know, pulling in a lot of cash. Uh, And then the made in space company being, you know, so on the on the frontier of what you're building, attracting, you know, new attention and new funding, and trying to pave the way to, you know, to a more um, dynamic space economy. And so I think financial, like, just from a high level, I think it's an interesting idea I could I could see how it would work, uh, how it would be successful. Twenty twenty, they're pulling in in excess of a hundred million dollars in revenue, and so they're already break even on operating.
0: Wait, wait, uh, made in space is is making a hundred million in revenue? No, 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 sorry, 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 no, no, no. no. I wish, <laughs> I wish, uh, the overall
1: conglomerate. Oh, okay, okay. So okay. that's sorry. I I I made the transition. So I was kind of hinting at the transition of like. You know, all these companies, they have different cash flows, and combined, I was saying that um, it creates like a, a more robust overall set of companies. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that the seven companies combined should have revenues in excess of $100 million from 2020. So that's last year. And so that revenue that they're generating is already uh, EBITDA positive, which is awesome. And so they're looking to grow. Uh, anywhere from the high 30s to, uh, you know, in excess of, you know, 80% a year uh, over the next few years. You know, I think that, you know, just looking at what they're expecting for 2021, a 37% growth in revenue, like, to me, that seems already pretty great for a company that is, you know, working in space and is, um, you know, trying to push the envelope. So I think this could be a pretty solid company that could just, you know, kind of trudge along until it it kind of um, wins the lotto with one of these experiments and they, you know, I don't know, can start um, like you have some SpaceX competitor that just uses these guys' technology to like make their own satellites. So instead of, you know, SpaceX launching satellites into space, maybe you have a competing satellite constellation that just like produces itself in space.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think it's interesting that like they're hinged to like ULA and these large uh, launch partners and with the government. Mm-hmm. Cuz like I think like the current trend is essentially like Blue Origin, Rocket Lab, SpaceX, like more of these private space companies being the future of mm-hmm. of the space industry. So I wonder like what what happens to all these contractors in the in the long term? Like are they still able to trudge along with NASA contracts or do they essentially just get eaten because they're relatively easy to copy from SpaceX or someone else? Who's less? Who's more willing That's to take good risks? That's a point.
1: I think that in the long run, if a company can't define, from a private sector perspective, what their you know key products and services are, I think the talent will get drained into companies that are like SpaceX or Rocket Labs, where they have like a very specific purpose, and you know they need a team to grow, and you know they'll compensate their team well for the services they provide. That's a great point. I'm hoping that Redwire can
0: find a good private sector niche. Long term, like if we were looking at like 20, 30 years out, I'd be pretty bearish on this. But if you're looking at like a five-year time horizon, like I think they're profitable already. Like they're making money. I think that their existing contracts are going to continue to grow uh, a little bit, at least for the next five years until it starts tapering off as the private sector starts uh, just eating the move on, or it's lunch even like after these contracts expire because like i think the main thing holding on like keeping these companies afloat is um the risk averse culture of the old space industry so these guys made in space they have a 3d printer maybe a cnc i mean maybe they have some interesting space innovations but i'm just thinking like could you just put a maker bot in space and and get the same results um and like if you're ula you don't want to necessarily take that risk you want to give nasa something that you that looks like it's worth like a few million dollars so you're gonna go tra- contract these people or nasa's gonna reach out to these people to make something with super ridiculous awesome specifications whereas spacex would be like we'll just put a uh, maker and call it a day and if that works like 80 percent as well for like a thousandth the cost then that's probably gonna be what takes over in the end and that's kind of the same story for i think all of these if you're willing to take risks and try something else that might be a cheaper solution or the smaller startups are, then they're going to win. But again, like, like red, red wire has a larger portfolio. They so don't only have things that can be easily copied by more <laughs> um, risk tolerant companies. So like payload adapters, maybe that's, Oh, that's definitely something that <laughs> SpaceX would just make in house, but uh, there's gotta be something here in their portfolio that, they actually like that's actually defensible against the new wave of companies.
1: I yeah I agree that that's a concern. I think made in space is probably the best shot at creating some form of a private sector play in terms of you know building out satellites like a, a machine that just basically turns out you know your own satellites. I think that over time you know and this is way oversimplifying it, but I would love to see some of the small companies that they acquired like the maybe Oakman Airspace, Loadpath, Deployable Space Systems, like those all seem to have like a good set of smart people. They they work on their own little projects that they're contracted on, but if they kind of help out and try to make Made in Space grow more quickly and like solve pr- more problems or like they they basically take what Made in Space is doing uh, and like put it on steroids. I feel like that would be in my opinion from like a private sector opinion, like the best outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. With those additional connections, especially in the industry, you could see a, a bump in the short term.
1: Also, I remember they had a crazy low valuation, in my opinion. Redwire, what was uh, the
0: valuation? It was, way, it was like 600 million. For a hundred million dollars in revenue? Yeah. What was their uh, EBITDA?
1: It's about 30-ish. For twenty twenty ones,
0: I mean adjusted E, but I think that valuation kind of makes sense. It's not really a growth company, and they're not even really trying to position it that way. It's like a stable, plotting along business with modest growth prospects. I mean, they're rate... trading at six times earnings. That's in like the five to ten range that I think kind of makes sense in this industry.
1: Yeah, I guess I don't have a good sense of what the multiples are for something like this where there's so much, um, it's like so, it's such a public sector.
0: There's no, nothing in this portfolio that I think could just ins- become a billion dollar company. I don't think there's anything that's gonna capture the public's attention and be like, yes, this will be a billion dollar company or at least has a chance to be. All of these are like very small parts of a larger ecosystem that all rely on the old ecosystem. 600 I think is maybe a little bit more than I would be willing to pay for it actually. Like that's six times earnings. Okay. Like in the next few years, maybe they'll be able to get to like 150 million in earnings. Maybe it'll be worth almost a billion. I don't really see this growing that quickly. Like I'd rather allocate my SPAC money to somewhere, somewhere else with better growth prospects. Like even honestly, even Astra, like I think Astra would be a better, at least it depends on your risk profile. Like this is relatively low risk, at least for the next five years. It's just that if I had to choose between Astra and this, like, I just prefer a higher risk, higher reward kind of play. So I would actually go with Astra because there is that potential for a multi-billion dollar uh, company. Whereas this one, I just don't see that happening. I would say, and, and I may just be
1: projecting kind of my wishes onto Redwire, but I I legitimately think that if they can put together a roadmap For how they would be a private sector player, I think that they could, like, they could basically take all the resources they have, try to do something ambitious, and really like shoot for the fences. But granted, they are, they're like pitching themselves as a conglomerate, and conglomerates don't really do that. So maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part.
0: I think in the long term, like, if, if, so, like, say you're SpaceX and you want to make a space station, like our the current space station the ISS, I think is, is due to deorbit in like 2025. So like it's, its life is, it's like expiration date is coming. Basically the ISS is not gonna be here after 2025, at least with the current plan. So if that's the case, then we don't really have another space station. So I could see Redwire buying something in that space that would support uh, building a new space station. But also, like, if if we're deorbiting the ISS in the next like five, six, seven years here, and we haven't even talked about a replacement, I don't think that's going to be driven by the government. So a potential private sector um, play could be a, a, a company that builds space stations, or that at least helped build the modules uh, of the ISS. There's one company that builds inflatable modules that one of them is actually mounted on the ISS. I can't remember the name right now, but... Oh, Bigelow. Right now they make inflatable modules for the space station. If they then were able to make a private space station, that could be like a really interesting acquisition. Um, if it's even possible, they might be too big of a company. Like I could see that being a multi-billion dollar business. They don't have it in their portfolio. They don't have anything that I I, I see could be a billion dollar business in, in the private sector side, especially like with all these different trends. Like you have a, a moon mission, you have uh, some asteroid missions coming up. If they had something that was going to help with these private sector initiatives, then then I could, uh, I'd be a bit more bullish, but right now, like, you know, $615 million valuation with like around a hundred million dollar revenue to, to like 12, 10, 15% margin. Yeah. I mean, that that's a slow growth, probably stable company that without like relatively little risk in their portfolio which also means relatively little chance of, up, of massive upside.
1: Okay. I, I can see that. Uh, you've, yeah, you've convinced me. I just looked up the Bigelow Airspace thing, and it seems like uh, when the pandemic hit, um, according to space.com, Bigelow Airspace lays off all employees.
0: Oh, so they went bankrupt. Perfect. <laughs> that's that's, that's so what it sounds buy them.
1: like. Yeah. So, yeah. Just do it. Yes, yeah, so they should uh, They should do an equi-hire. I imagine a lot of those people probably went off to other companies, but
0: uh, yeah. At this point, like if they laid off everybody and shut down, then uh, yeah, it's gonna be hard to get those people back. Yeah.
1: Oh, I think I guess. But um, you'd be able to get the IP. They probably furloughed everybody, is what it looks like. So maybe they're if they're if they're still a company, like let's see. Okay.
0: First. I mean, if they furloughed every, I mean, I think that means they're dead.
1: Yeah, they haven't really launched any new press releases since October 2019 so that's not a great sign and they were pretty frequent before yeah
0: well I guess like your own that's the other thing right they only have one customer they were contracted to build an inflatable module for the ISS they built it like five years ago and it's been sitting there who else is going to buy a inflatable module I'll buy one
1: support support
0: support struggling small businesses Alex the thing is that those patents might be interesting, like all the IP. So if you're a Redwire, you can just purchase those. And then if anyone expresses interest in space stations, you can essentially have the IP to then try and go after those contracts.
1: So as of a couple of weeks ago, actually, Bigelow uh, sued
0: NASA for about a million dollars. There's probably a project uh, cancellation. Yeah, that's what it looks like. So like. in government, If the government cancels a project... Then you, as the contractor, have to charge the government for anything that was spent on the canceled project. Mm-hmm. So, like, if let's say you're making like books, if you're like gonna print a bunch of books and you bought like hundred thousand dollars worth of paper, mm-hmm. and then the project is canceled, you're supposed to then charge the government or whoever the uh, government branch or office was mm. uh, for that project. You're supposed to charge them for that hundred thousand for of paper. Yeah. So that's maybe what happened. A project they were doing then canceled. Then they had a million dollars in material costs, and then the government didn't pay for it. Because also, like the government, I my so my parents are in government contracting. They said they had uh, an issue like thirty years ago where they they ca- charged the government after a project was canceled, and the guy never talked to them again. So at least what I from what I've heard is that they don't like paying it. So the million dollars, they maybe just the contracting officer didn't want to pay it. But that's all speculation. I don't know. Is there anything
1: preventing somebody like SpaceX from building their own lab aside from the cost? In like uh International Space Station? Yeah, yeah, like building their own, you know,
0: SpaceX uh station. Uh not that I know of. And also like how hard is it? I that's the other thing, like, with with SpaceX is like if you build a space station for yourself, you don't sell it to anybody, and you put it in space, do you need a patent? Like, do you need do you have to worry about IP? Like, if you just steal everybody else's IP and use it in your own stuff, but you don't sell it to anybody? No, right? Then it doesn't matter. So, I'm just saying, like, Bigelow made this inflatable Kevlar space station module. Uh-huh. If SpaceX just, like, look at all their patents, hired their people, and just literally made the same thing, but they made it for themselves and they don't sell it, then it's not a patent violation, right? It's only a patent violation if you sell it in the market. So,
1: no, but if you, I think it's more about making money off of it, right? So like, like if SpaceX just wants to have a lab for no reason, I guess they could do that. But like the idea for that SpaceX, as a private company, would just build a lab and do nothing with it, like make no money off of oh, it. No, no,
0: no. I'm not. I mean, not a, not a lab. Like, you you basically need a, a livable habitat in space, mm-hmm. right? But the so, but
1: the idea is that it would probably charge people money to use it. That's tourism
0: they're not selling they're not selling the the patented item, right I don't think they're selling an experience with the patented item,
1: yeah, I'm not a lawyer, but I feel like the idea of damages with patents is if you copy a patent that is still active, you're basically doing something there are no damages if you just like i don't know if this is software, right like if somehow you patented software and you just do it as a hobby project and you do it you know. For your for your own education or for your own little enjoyment or entertainment, there's no damages. But if you start like sharing it out to people and like, you know, making some form of money off of it, that's considered damages because you shouldn't be able to make money off of something that technically belongs to somebody else.
0: I'm looking at it now. The owner has the right to exclude you from making or using the patented product. Yeah. That makes... So, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. Which is interesting. So, yeah, SpaceX would just have to get the license. But then if you're Redwire, like, this might be an interesting licensing opportunity. You buy the patent, license it out. hmm It also depends on when the patent expires, because it looks like this company was actually founded in 2000. So, I don't know when they patented, but it, if it was 2000, it might be expired at this point. But...
1: Uh, I think the idea yeah. of a private uh, international space station, or just a private space station would be pretty
0: cool yeah i mean you're gonna need some type of a waste station just like i guess what would the use be of space like the only reason to justify a space station from a besides like just having a lab is maybe manufacturing if you're able to make something super valuable that justifies the price you can sell the experience as a tourism thing which might be the more practical short-term thing otherwise like if you're spacex why do you need a space station Cause like the space, the spaceship would essentially effectively act as a space station. It's like building a, using a submarine versus like a, an underwater base. Yeah. So if like, if the,
1: uh, what is it? The crew dragon, like the little capsule that takes up the people up to the ISS. If there was no ISS and you just, I don't know, somehow chained a bunch of crew capsules together, you would eventually make your own
0: station. The starship is so much larger. Like their their large um, interplanetary spaceship that they're working on. Mm -hmm. Like it's so much larger that like you wouldn't really need a space station. It would be like the size of one.
1: But I guess that's what all the moon missions are supposed to be about, right? Like, why make an international space station if you could go to the moon?
0: Uh, Moon's pretty far, right? It's like a three day journey, and then you got to land on it and you got to get off of it. Everything's a lot more complicated. And there's no zero-G. All
1: Hmm. right. So what is the summary here? Rocket, Lab, uh, most mature and most exciting out of all of them. Uh, All of the companies that we've talked about today, most bullish, I think, for both of us. Astra, um, higher risk for sure. Uh, Maybe high reward if they can pull off what they are saying. Like the The best part of Astra, I think, is probably their two ex-SpaceX executives. And Astra seems to be this wild card of just snatching up different space contractors and space companies. They're still pretty early stage in terms of some of the innovations they want to offer the market, but they don't seem too wildly overvalued. But also, they're probably not going to be growing super fast for now.
0: So I guess in terms of like risk profile, like Redwire, super duper stable, not going to grow very much. Rocket Lab, very good past performance, very good potential for like a, maybe a 10x uh, growth in the next like 10 years, uh-huh. especially as the space matures. Uh-huh. Astra, pretty high risk. I think relatively low valuation right now. I, I would maybe say the risk is not as high as it seems. Like I, I think that they can, ha- they can get it. They can land their rocket in the next uh, two attempts or sorry, get to orbit in the next two attempts. So, I'm a bit more uh bullish on their ability to do that. I just they're further behind so there is higher risk, so there's going to be some type of risk premium there. So,
1: they're expecting three launches. <laughs> Very poetic. They have three shots. They have three tries in 2021 or like at least that's what they're expecting so far. So, and your expectation is, you know, to f- maybe two more is it two more failed launches and then one good one or
0: what, what's your... No, I think uh, one failed launch, one success. What about the... Because I've already had two failed launches. But I guess in terms of ones that like got off the ground, mm-hmm. they had uh, two. So one, I uh, saw the video. It was pretty good, pretty interesting video. So it went up, I think it was uh, like two kilometers in the air. Mm-hmm. And then the rocket cut out and then broke in half and then fell and exploded on the ground. The other one got to uh, like what, 150, 200 kilometers and then, uh, the second stage failed next one. I think they're going to figure out the second stage and then maybe something will will go wrong, but I don't know. I, I feel like the next one could actually work. Uh, but just to be safe, I'm going to give them two more attempts to, to get it into orbit.
1: So in terms of favorites, it seems like your ranking would be uh rocket lab number one, Astra number two, And Redwire number three, in terms of how much you like them.
0: Yeah, I think also it depends on your risk profile. Like, I'm more risk tolerant. So, Redwire is grossly, incredibly boring to me (laughs) because I just think like a 12% return is going to be not something that's very exciting. But Astra has a large, has a good potential, and Rocket Lab has uh, great potential as well. So,
1: yeah, I like, uh, for me, it would be Rocket Lab, Redwire, and then Astra. You have you're more confident in their ability to execute than I am. Maybe I don't pay enough attention into the space. To me, there's a fifty fifty shot of them kind of fizzling out and the team kind of disbanding, in my opinion. I think Redwire. I mean, they just
0: they just got uh, two hundred. They just like basically doubled their funding, right? So they had hundred million from twenty sixteen till uh, whenever their merger is, and from their merger, they're supposed to get around one hundred eighty million. So that's a lot of extra rocket fuel. To, to get their aspirations off the ground plus like i like their launch cadence i think that's another factor it's like they launched in september they launched in december every three months is like a pretty good launch cadence and means that they're able to learn relatively fast
1: well i mean their ultimate vision is to be able to launch every day what like what's the marginal benefit of launching let's say weekly versus daily for their like i don't even know what their payloads are going to be but electron
0: can launch every few days or that that's what they're going to be doing especially with these smaller satellites if you can launch once a month you can probably launch once a week you just need to have the the manufacturing and the uh, customer backlog. well
1: that's what i mean it's like but so what i mean is actually like what is the marginal benefit of being able to do them every day as opposed to just every week like i feel like the what the like one of their big selling points is something that i don't understand why it's so useful like like if they have the electron and they can launch every day i guess they're betting on the fact that in 5 years the market for or the demand for launching satellites is just so big that it makes sense to launch satellites daily
0: i think no i think that's exactly it i think like right now like the 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 Everyone's been focused on these massive satellites, because, like, if you're gonna if you're gonna spend so much money to put something into orbit, you might as well put something that's gonna last a long time. It's gonna be super robust. It's gonna be able to stabilize its orbit. But now I think there's more interest in kind of these throwaway satellites that go up. They read. They get some readings. They do whatever they need to do, and then they um, deorbit in maybe a couple months. I think like I. But I think the the industry has to catch up. Like. Once you have these rockets, it's not like everyone's going to have satellites that are ready to go. It's like, okay, we now have this capability. Do we have any missions as like a university uh, or as a small company that we want to put on these rockets? And then, so I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's going to grow together. Mm, interesting. But right now, they're just like, this isn't, this isn't a... Uh, this doesn't exist. So it's going to take a while for people to kind of figure out what to do with this new new capability. Fair enough. All right. I guess time will tell.
1: We'll have to check in and see how all these uh, companies are doing in a, in a, maybe a year or so. I'm
0: I'm uh, pretty confident uh, in Astra after talking through this. I was a little bit uh, skeptical after um, like realizing they hadn't done any launches, but then after like doing the research and looking at their launches and their rockets and how, like what type of failures they have, I'm, I'm a lot more confident. It's not like they're just blowing up on the launch pad. Like they're actually like flying, they're going up somewhat. <laughs> they're just uh, having some trouble staying there. I mean, I'm rooting for them. I, I'm i not as
1: bullish on them, but I'm definitely rooting for them.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, Rocket Lab is definitely more more of a sure bet. But I think with the with the SPAC, like they're going to get the mm-hmm. cash they need to, to do it. Now it's just a matter of getting the, the customers and trying to actually reach their 2.5 million Mm dollar target because like if they're like if they're 2.5 million dollars like their payload i think is like 150 Mm -hmm. kilograms which is like half of the electron but they're a third of the price of the electron but also like if you're if you're what are you what are you trying to put up into space that's 330 kilograms between if you have any like fuel for orbit keeping i don't even think you could put that in so like whatever you're going to put is not going to be something that stays in orbit for very long. So that is a limiting factor is I actually don't know what you would want to put in, like what you would want to spend $2.5 million putting into orbit. That only weighs like 300 pounds max. But uh, yeah, I'm sure the market will figure something out. And then these guys will be able to to uh, sell a lot of these. It might, I guess one last thing, it might be worth mentioning that the uh, there was like a Falcon 1 at one point that uh, SpaceX had years ago. I think that was actually their first rocket. And I think they had like two or three commercial m- missions on it. And then they realized that nobody actually wanted it. And that's when they just completely switched over to the Falcon 9. Hmm. So at least 10 years, or maybe, I don't think it was 10 years ago, maybe like eight years ago, or maybe it was 10 years ago, a long time ago when uh, when SpaceX was, was just starting out and they were in this small mm-hmm. satellite game. There weren't that many customers. But uh, in the last 10 years, I think that market has probably changed. Thanks for listening. Follow us
1: at SPAC Island on Twitter for updates, to give us feedback on the show, and to tell us which SPACs we should review next. Note, the opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts and not of any entities they may be associated with. As always, this is not financial advice. Remember to do your own research.